Welcome to the Virginia Politics and Government Podcast. Today we're here with Lowell Feld, a citizen activist, author, and founder of the Blue Virginia Political Blog. Why did you found Blue Virginia? I founded Raising Cain in January 2005, and Blue Virginia is the successor blog. After John Kerry lost election to George W. Bush, I, like a lot of Democrats and liberals, were not very happy. Trying to think of the best way I could fight back. I was brainstorming with friends and trying to figure out what could we do. And all of a sudden, it just hit me. I live in Virginia. This place has elections every year. In 2005, there were elections for governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, house of delegate, all this, that aphorism, think globally, act locally. Well, why don't we actually apply that in our own lives? Then we were trying to think of how we could do that. And at that time, blogging was starting to get pretty big. I mean, I think uh, political blogging, 2003, 2003, four was really starting to accelerate with national blogs and state-based progressive and conservative blogs, both. Daily Coast, I think, was founded in 2002. I think um, Jerome Armstrong, who was considered the blog father, quote-unquote, by a lot of people, founded his blog, Mighty D, I think, in 2002. A lot of Virginia progressive blogs and conservative blogs were getting founded around then. So we decided we'd start a blog, and we did this play on words of raising Kane to raise Tim Kane to the governor's mansion and also kind of cause a little trouble or whatever if we could. That was the beginning of the blogging thing, and then, I don't know if I'd have one reader, but it turned out to be fairly successful, and we got a lot of readers. I met Tim Kane and Leslie Byrne and all of these Democrats running for office that year. I went down to Richmond to the state Jefferson Jackson dinner and was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And then Kane won that election, and then next thing you know, we got sucked in or whatever into this Jim Webb thing. James Webb uh, had written an editorial in the San Diego Union-Tribune saying he was interested in running for U.S. Senate from Virginia, totally out of the blue. I found an email address, contacted him, and we started emailing back and forth. Next thing you know, this turns into this draft James Webb movement. Ended up working for the Webb campaign as their sort of social media coordinator. When I started all this, I was working for the Energy Department, and then I left the Energy Department to go work for the Webb campaign in June 2006. Blue Virginia moved away from the Kane branding. This is about promoting progressive values and politicians and democratic politicians as well, trying to help them get elected and fighting back against conservative and right wing. When I started in 2005, I think the state was purple. But if I said that we're going to turn Virginia blue, I got mocked by the right wing bloggers. Nowadays, it's sort of this bifurcated thing. We win the statewide elections and we win the presidential years. We win the governor years pretty well and federal elections. But then the Virginia House of Delegates is overwhelmingly Republican. They control the state Senate. Hillary Clinton won Virginia by five points. wasn't even that close. Yet Republicans controlled the House of Delegates by, you know, 66, 34 or whatever. So I've been continuing the blogging. I enjoy it. I like writing. I like covering politics. I like going out and covering events and getting involved and, and making a difference. Blue Virginia is certainly the leading left-wing political blog focused on Virginia state politics and government. How many people interact with your website? Page views could be 100,000, 120,000 or more per month, depending on the month, though. I mean, sometimes leading up to a presidential election or leading up to a gubernatorial election, it can spike. And in the off years, we have these odd year elections. Traffic can be relatively low. Also, voter turnout is very low in those years. Some of the primaries in those House of Delegates elections in those years, it could be like 3% turnout. We have a weekly newsletter that you can sign up for, have uh, over 2,000 people signed up. One thing that you frequently mention on your blog is that a lot of the mainstream newspaper reporters who seem to use your blog for political sourcing and for starting stories often don't give credit. Right. If there are any journalists out there listening, what would you say to them? 
I would say it's just fundamental journalistic ethics. Back in 2005, I think it was, we had our first blogger summit organized. I think it was by the Sorensen Institute, actually. And we had a panel on blogger ethics. Of course, you link to the source. If someone had a scoop, you credit them. I never even went to journalism school, and this is just obvious. I have found that the blogs do that, almost always. The mainstream, or I don't even call it the main, the corporate media, whatever, amazingly, they don't do it, even with each other a lot of times. And I've talked to reporters about this that have said, actually, they don't even do it with other reporters or other newspapers, but they really bad with blogs. Another one, by the way, that's really bad is BPAP, the Virginia Public Access Project. They will include op-eds or editorials from the Washington Times, far right. They'll include editorials that are very strongly opinionated and all that, but they are really gun-shy about including blogs. I would argue that if you're not reading the blogs, first of all, you're missing out on a lot. If you were reading the blogs, for example, leading up to the Eric Cantor, Dave Bratt primary, you would have known for months in advance of that that something was going on. I'm not saying you would have known that Eric Cantor was going to lose, but you wouldn't have been as shocked as a lot of the mainstream media reporters were because those guys and gals were at the Bull Elephant and Bearing Drift and other right-wing Virginia political blogs were going going to these conventions, they were going to the 10th CD or the 7th CD or the 5th CD Republican conventions, and they were having huge battles at these things over a variety of issues, Cantor specifically. There were rumblings. It's not just in that case, it's in a lot of cases. Obviously, they're very opinionated, but there also is actual information in there. You don't see corporate media reporters staying for 10, 12 hours at a committee meeting for the congressional district. In 2014, Jim Moran, our former congressman here, announced he was retiring. We had a 14-way or 12-way or whatever it was primary. A bunch of debates. I went to most of them. And I covered them. I videotaped them. I wrote up detail what happened and graded them and everything. I rarely saw another reporter at those things. And if they did, it was like a very short report. Glad you brought up those two other blogs because I think that much of the state's journalism core, I think that they're quite good, but there are too few of them mm -hmm. and they're doing the best they can. I do not agree with everything on the bull elephant or Bearing Drift right. or even all the time on Blue Virginia, of mm -hmm. course. What do you think of those two blogs? I think they're complementary to some extent. I mean, they're covering Virginia politics from their perspective, which I don't agree with, but it's from a conservative, right-wing, Tea Party perspective. They do things that I wouldn't do. For example, they're going to go and cover their Republican events, and they're going to be swarming all over those things. I'm not going to necessarily be doing that. They're very valuable in their own way. Now, you have to read around a lot of their opinions to get to the actual facts in there, and you have to figure out what those are. They're like alternative facts. This is an era where we have alternative facts and actual facts, I guess. But if you look at the bull elephant right now, I was just looking at it, and you will actually see articles talking about how there really could be massive voter fraud, which there is not. That's just a fact. It's not debatable. There isn't. There's another article on there right now ranting about, literally, I quoted this, how anarchists, socialists, and other thugs of the left are actually quote, encouraging and facilitating, quote unquote, Islamic terror. And there's a really weird commentary about how, quote, modern leftists love the poor, the hungry, and the oppressed the way a Bernie Madoff loves his investors. They are a means to an end, nothing more, nothing less. So you get all that kind of stuff. And I mean, it's hard to read. I guess it gives you a window into their thinking. I find it disturbing that anyone could believe that, frankly. I mean, I, I don't even understand. And there's actually bigotry on there anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, this Muslim ban thing. You see cheerleading for that. 
I'm focusing on Democratic and progressive things. I don't see them at the Arlington County Democratic Committee meeting either. So we do live now in a world of alternative facts and a bifurcated reality. When did this bifurcation begin? This isn't new. I think what's new to some extent is social media and the ability to very quickly spread this false news. On Facebook, one of the problems is that real news is presented the same exact way that fake news or lies are presented. And if you don't know or if you don't look into it, you might just press share or like and just think it's true. It used to be if you wanted the news, you had three networks, CBS, ABC, or NBC. They were gatekeepers. They told you what the news was. You had the New York Times, the Washington Post. Now you have a million sources, and you could just stay in your bubble if you want. Pew did some serious research on this, and they found that Democrats get their news from a wide variety of sources that they actually trust. On the right, they get their news from, like, Fox, Rush, and you're running out already. The Daily Call. I mean, really, it was very few... They didn't trust any of the mainstream media at all. That's one thing that social media facilitates. So you couldn't just be on Facebook and just sharing with your friends. Another thing what happens is you have people unfriend. If you don't like someone's political views, you can just unfriend them or unfollow. And so you're basically just talking to people who agree with you. They've been conditioned also for many years. They were told, do not believe the liberal media. And the liberal media was defined as pretty much the media, except for the right-wing media. So right-wing radio was okay. Fox was okay, and a couple other things were okay. Other than that, don't believe it. And they don't, basically. It's also at another level when the nominee of a major political party and then the president of the United States can get on Twitter at 4 in the morning that 3 million illegal immigrants vote or other just flat-out lies. You cannot believe it all you want, but it's not true. But because he tweets it out to his millions of followers and they retweet it, next thing you know, it's reached many, many millions of people maybe tens of millions. It sets the news agenda for the rest of the day. It's a big problem for democracy. What did Daniel Patrick Moynihan say that you can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts. And yet today, people do have their own set of, quote, facts. Social media has a lot of potentially very positive aspects to it, but it also has some dark side. You wrote an excellent book called Netroots Rising, How a Citizen Army of Bloggers and Online Activists is Changing American Politics with your co-author, Nate Wilcox, which is still very relevant and it goes into the history and the tactics of the middle of the last decade in terms of the rise of Netroots activism. If you had to write an addendum to bring it to the recent day, what would you do? The Netroots was rising in a number of senses through certainly the period covered in that book, 2008. Since then, a lot of things have changed. For one thing, a lot of new tools have come about and a lot of new social media have come about that were not in existence. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Twitter. One of the first uses of YouTube for political purposes was actually on the race I was on in 2006, the Jim Webb race, the infamous Macaca video. That was one of the first times, I think, may have been the first time that a actual video by a tracker of a candidate saying something kind of outrageous actually may have changed the trajectory and result of an election. So you've also seen when this book started off, there were a lot of blogs. In Virginia here, there were a lot of state-based progressive blogs. When I formed Raising Cane, I remember Waldo Jaquith, I think, actually contacted me. He had a blog, Waldo Jaquith blog. Turned out they had a listserv and there were like half a dozen or eight or ten Virginia progressive political bloggers at that time. And now they're almost all not blogging. 
political blogs have consolidated, where there maybe is one gigantic national one, like Daily Coast. Most states don't even have a progressive political blog at all. The nature of the blogosphere has changed fundamentally. It's shrunk. I think it's gotten more corporatized to some extent. A lot of bloggers were doing this in 2003, 4, 5, 6. They needed to eventually make money. And I think what we found out was that, except for a very few, there wasn't an ability to make money off of political blogging. Very difficult. You've got to find some source of funding. Now, on the right, of course, there's money sloshing around. You have the Koch brothers, you have the Mercer family, you have all these billionaires. And they have very smartly invested in the states. And it's been quite successful. It's not just about blogs or net roots. They've invested in media, they've invested in candidates, they've invested in a lot of things. And it helped them win back control of most states. There are only, I think, six states right now that have complete democratic control of the governor's mansion and the legislature. That's it. And 30-something are complete Republican control. Nate and I have joked around, my co-author on Netroots Rising have joked around that we should write a sequel called Netroots Falling. It's not that simple, but it definitely seemed like there was a heyday, 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8. During that period, you have to remember that Democrats were out of power, out of the White House. George W. Bush was in the White House. The Iraq War was raging. Hurricane Katrina, we had that horrible disaster in late August in 2005. Democrats were angry. Sad to say, in a way, but anger is a motivator. I mean, hope is a motivator, too, but anger can be a very strong motivator. So Democrats were really fired up. They wanted to do something. Some started blogs, some did other things, formed other organizations of various kinds, got involved politically. 2005, 6, 7, and 8, we went on a massive winning streak. We took back the U.S. House, Senate, White House. We got a 60-vote, supposedly veto-proof majority in the U.S. Senate. We also hit our high point in terms of the state legislatures and governor's mansions in 2008. And after that, there was the backlash. Then the right got energized and the pendulum swung in the other direction. Part of it is the times. Where's the energy? And right now, I feel like it's switching back. What would you like to see from Democratic politicians at the state level in Virginia? First of all, I'd like to see them win back control of the House of Delegates and State Senate. That would be nice. There's a broader question here of what I would like from the entire Virginia political system because the Democratic politicians exist within this overall system, which you wrote a whole book about this, and I think it was excellent. This system to me is fundamentally not just corrupt, but it's basically kind of a corporatocracy, I guess you could call it, ruled by the corporations. We have a system here in Virginia where you almost have to take money. If you don't take money from the corporations, you're just not going to have money, I guess, is the bottom line. And if you don't have money, I don't know how you run your campaigns and do your thing. So you have a state legislature that is theoretically serving the people, yet they have corporations and lobbyists swarming all over them. This is a citizen legislature. It only meets for a couple months of the year. And yet the lobbyists, corporations, they're there all year long. Our legislators have very low pay, almost no staff. It's very hard for them to do their own research on anything. They're supposed to be experts on everything, I guess, right? I mean, there are a million issues that come. How could they possibly analyze all those things? Well, your friendly lobbyist from Corporation X will be very happy to explain it to you. Now, I would love if Democrats could just say, go away, don't come in my office. But it's pretty hard to do that the way the system is set up.
you need fundamentally systemic reform in Virginia in order to have the type of government that actually is responsive to the people, that makes decisions that make sense really for Virginia and not just for the wealthiest. Literally, you have corporations in Virginia, including regulated monopolies that write their own legislation to regulate their own industry, that are allowed to give unlimited amounts of money to the very people who are going to vote on whether or not this bill, which could mean millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, whatever, for this industry, will pass or fail. Lobbyists are allowed to take them out to dinner. You've had golfing trips and hunting trips and all this stuff, all expenses paid. What can listeners who want to get involved in Virginia politics do to help? Anyone can get involved in a variety of different ways. First of all, you can get involved with your local committee. I'm going to talk as a Democrat here. Here in Arlington, we have a great local Democratic committee, very effective, very active. You can become a precinct captain, and you can volunteer in anything really you're interested in. If you're interested in social media, you can volunteer to help them out with that. If you're interested in door knocking and phone banking and whatever you're interested in, so you can certainly... Do that. Of course, you can help your favorite politician, if you have one, to get elected. You can volunteer on their campaigns directly. You can give them money. If you maybe don't want them to just get money from corporations, you might actually want to give them money as a citizen. You can write letters to the editor, which I think is very important because I think a lot of these newspaper articles are flawed in many ways. Their editorial slants are flawed, and you can write letters, and you can call into radio shows, and you can make your voice heard in a lot of different ways. You can also keep in touch with your representatives in a variety of ways, and you can let them know what you're thinking. Even if you're a Democrat and you're in Dave Bratz, who's a right-wing Republican, if you're in his district, you can still tell him what you think. I saw a great example of what people can do the other night. He had a Facebook town hall, and Democrats, I know that they organized, and they had their questions all prepared. They had a bunch of people. I don't know if it was dozens or a hundred or whatever, and they swarmed his town hall. It was great. And that's all the questions he got, as far as I could tell, whether online or that were read to him, were sounded like from Democrats. They were reasonable questions, I thought. They were perfectly fair questions, but he didn't get many easy softball questions, though. You can march. You can run for office yourself. And I think that may be almost the most important thing in some ways, since most districts in the state, you have a Republican or a Democrat who's not opposed by anyone. Very rarely do you have a primary for an incumbent Republican or Democrat. That's your chance to, if you feel strongly, let's say, about a particular issue or about corporate control of our democracy, you can primary someone. Or you can run in the general election if there's no candidate. You might not win, but you can get your message out there. And as far as Blue Virginia or something like that, you can contribute to blogs like Blue Virginia. You can help by writing articles. I would love to get more contributions from all over the state, from different ethnic groups, race. I mean, I'd love to get it from everyone, as long as they have a pro-democratic, for my blog at least, perspective. So I would just say, though, be informed, be engaged in your democracy. That's the thing. This is your democracy. We have the potential of losing our democracy. We've taken it for granted. Now we have President Trump with a Republican Congress, so you really have no check and balance on that unless they're willing to stand up to him. The danger is there. We cannot take anything for granted. You can't take a woman's right to choose for granted. You can't take Endangered Species Act for granted. So if you care about any of these things, it really behooves you to get involved. With the Muslim ban, you had huge numbers of people out at Dulles. We had a rally at Reagan National Airport the other day. There's been a huge backlash. The politicians, I think, look to the people to some extent. Tim Kaine actually said this point blank the other day. 
we, he was talking about the senators and politicians, we're energized to see that the people are out and they're energized and they're pushing us, actually. You've had some rollback of that, major legal actions, including by Virginia's Attorney General Mark Herring, and they've been successful to a large extent. They've gotten ruling after ruling that the Trump administration has to back off. I think some of that might have happened anyway, but I think some of that came from they saw the energy. And they immediately, you notice, Governor McAuliffe and Attorney General Herring made a beeline for Dulles Airport, and they were right there with the protesters. Tom Perriello and Susan Platt, who's running for lieutenant governor as a Democrat, they were all there. Politicians look to the people. They want to get reelected. They want to get elected. They may think something's right, but if they feel like they have no support for it, they're, they're reluctant to do it. But if they see, wow, there's a lot of support out there for this, well, that makes it easy. I can do the right thing. You don't have to be anyone special or any special connection. You can, these were regular people. That was the cool thing. Just citizens. Not just. I shouldn't say just. To me, citizen is the best word that we have. They were citizens, proud citizens of the United States of America, and they're standing up for their beliefs and their rights as Americans. Lowellfeld, you've provided a model of engaged citizen activism that has greatly benefited Virginia Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Thanks so much for your work and for this interview. Thank you very much.